Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 2nd of February 2022. News. Glasgow workplace parking fees could bring in £30 million. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Glasgow could bring in £30 million from a citywide workplace levy on car parking spaces as the local authority continues to explore the option of introducing the scheme. Councils across Scotland are being given the option of introducing a workplace parking levy which companies would pay and is a bid to encourage less dependency on car usage as the Scottish Government seeks to reduce traffic by 20% by 2030. Glasgow City Council is one of the authorities considering it and a report to members of the Environment, Sustainability and Carbon Reduction Policy Committee revealed how the city could benefit financially. As part of the development of the Glasgow Transport Strategy, bus regulation and the costs associated with it were also highlighted along with the benefits to other cities of an integrated ticketing system. However, before the workplace parking plan can progress, the report said a more up-to-date assessment of eligible parking spaces in the city centre and the city generally is required, particularly in relation to post-COVID-19 impacts on travel. Deborah Payton, Connectivity Officer, delivered the report and said working place parking levy could be an important revenue generator for sustainable transport projects and it is viewed that it could be broadly feasible for the city. Ms Payton said WPL could act as a demand management tool to influence modal shift to more sustainable ways of travel as well as generating revenue to invest solely in sustainable transport interventions in the Glasgow Transport Strategy. The report added that WPL and other revenue-generating initiatives, such as road user charging, would offer a stable and secure local funding stream that could underpin, supplement and lever more competitive funding sources and be used to underwrite additional borrowings. Potential revenue surpluses may range from around £2.5 million to £6 million per annum for a city centre scheme to around £20 million to £30 million per annum to a city-wide scheme. The report added the implementation and delivery costs are relatively low, but the scheme would take at least three years to set up and £1 million to £1.6 million to develop. A workplace levy scheme is already in operation in Nottingham with a charge of £428 a year per space. As part of the Glasgow Transport Strategy, development future bus governance was also looked at. The report found cities with a single integrated multi-ticket system with one body setting fares performs better in terms of almost all public transport parameters. 
The report also found the city to be significantly lower for bus usage when compared to best performing cities. In terms of average bus speeds, Glasgow did poorly against most comparator cities. The report added that as a consistent pattern, cities with a predominantly monopoly market or single operator transport network delivery model in almost all instances outperformed other cities in transport use numbers. It was noted that the pandemic has had a significant impact on bus operations in Glasgow and the wider Strathclyde area, with reduced patronage and fare box revenue, whilst grappling with general traffic levels that are returning to pre-pandemic levels. Research partnership working could be a way to lessen the gap, including bus service improvement partnerships, bus franchising and municipal ownership. However, the report suggests a £300 million capital investment fund, an additional £22.7 million per annum of revenue funding and retention of £21 million of national concessionary travel scheme reimbursement would be required to create conditions in which the region can achieve a world-class bus network. Bus franchising would cost up to £15 million to build a business case and at least seven years to implement impose significant new risks to local transport authorities. Acquiring bus operators in the region to run municipally owned bus services could cost around £200 million. Councillor Jill Brown raised the issue of integrated transport and asked if the council was really challenging themselves. She said, we seem to be taking a small shuffle forward rather than a big step forward, given that we know we are behind the curve on bus travel. Our travel length is taking longer and our bus use is lower than in other cities. We need to get ahead to actually offer an integrated travel system that Glasgow deserves. Convener councillor Angus Miller said the report was very ambitious and it was a firm foundation to build on. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Recorded from the Herald on the 2nd of February 2022 from the sports section. Callum McGregor face mask revealed as, he, as Celtic captain dons protective shield by Yoon Payton. It was the big news every Celtic fan was hoping for this evening. Captain Callum McGregor will start tonight's Old Firm Derby versus Rangers after being passed fit by the club's medical staff. The Scotland star sustained a serious facial injury less than two weeks ago during the Hoops 2-1 Scottish Cup victory over Alloa. The midfielder was forced off with the cheekbone injury and hasn't been seen back in action since. Ange Postacoglu teased earlier this week that his skipper could potentially make this game. And when the team news filtered through earlier this evening, every Celtic fan will have been delighted to see his name in the starting eleven. In order to play though, McGregor will have to wear a protective face mask, as seen here. His commitment to do whatever possible in order to play will only add to the admiration he has of those in the Celtic faithful. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 2nd of February 2022, from the sports section, Green Brigade unveil pre-match banner with Send Them Back Diggit Rangers. Celtic fans unfurled a display ahead of kick-off against Rangers tonight. The north curved section of the stadium brought out a flag that read Send Them Back to Hell Boys, more to follow. That article was by Aidan Smith. Recorded from the Herald on the 2nd of February 2022, from the sports section, Rangers fans in Glasgow M8 pyro display ahead of Celtic Derby Clash by David Irvin. 
Rangers fans lit the sky above Glasgow's M8 red with pyro and fireworks ahead of the derby clash against Celtic. A group of supporters lined up along a bridge over the busy motorway to show their support for the Ibrox side to take on Celtic at Parkhead. Footage shared online shows a number of fans holding flares aloft, turning the sky red as fireworks were also set off as drivers packed the motorway at rush hour. A red, white and blue flag could also be seen being waved from the overpass. It comes as fans also gathered at Ibrox to give their side a fireworks send-off as the team bus left the stadium headed for the east end of Glasgow. A fireworks display outside the main entrance awaited the players as they hopped on the coach alongside the management team and backroom staff. The fans also got some atmosphere building with chants on top of the pyro displays. Video footage on social media showed the scenes outside the stadium. Rangers fans have shown their support from the streets, ahead of the match with only home fans in attendance inside Celtic Park. Parkhead Chiefs informed away supporters no allocation would be provided after Celtic did not receive any away tickets for the match in August at Ibrox. That article was by David Irvin. Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 2nd of February 2022. Agenda. Protect those for whom learning to live with Covid isn't an option. By Joe Nove. Recent changes to social distancing measures are a welcome signal for many that life may be returning to normal and we are learning to live with COVID-19. For the clinically extremely vulnerable population in Scotland, however, they raise a new set of problems and complicated concerns. More than 2,000 people in Scotland have the incurable blood cancer myeloma and are included in the clinically extremely vulnerable population. Myeloma patients are much more likely than the average person to contract COVID-19 and significantly less likely to have a strong immune response to a COVID-19 vaccination. Myeloma is an extremely individual cancer and there is currently no way to determine which patients have received sufficient protection from vaccines. This makes it very difficult for individual patients and families to understand their chance of contracting COVID-19 and how serious their infection may be. This means patients and families have no way of knowing the level of risk they face as they go about their day-to-day lives. Returning to a place of work, doing the food shop or dropping the children off at school all mean additional exposure with potentially serious consequences. At the start of the pandemic, full social distancing measures offered patients a degree of vital extra protection. As measures now lift, this additional protection reduces and patient risk grows higher once more. For many in the myeloma community, this leaves them having to return to full shielding once again, only this time without the support they had at the start of the pandemic. As the world opens up, they are forced to lock down with all the additional anxieties and pressures that brings. We know that measures that require or request the continued use of face masks and social distancing are greatly appreciated by patients and their families. They feel less isolated and left behind, and this reflects in their decisions about what they feel safe to do. But these are ultimately goodwill gestures that rely on the generous support of the Scottish public and inevitably there is a limit to the extent of the protection they can be expected to afford. There are practical ways in which we can support myeloma patients along with more than 64,000 people who are classed as severely immunosuppressed in Scotland. Myeloma UK is calling for a comprehensive framework that offers financial and legal protection to patients required to continue to self-isolate and take additional measures to protect themselves. We need a commitment that clinically extremely vulnerable patients will be prioritised for further COVID-19 vaccine doses and booster shots, as well as for life-saving antiviral treatments, 
and we need lateral flow tests to remain free and accessible to all immunocompromised patient populations and their families. Opening up society should not mean turning back the clock for some of the most vulnerable people in our community. Let's take the lessons we have learned in the last two years and put the right protections in place for those who are not able to learn to live with COVID-19. Joe Nove is Acting Chief Executive at Myeloma UK. Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 2nd of February 2022. Scotland's drug deaths. Consumption room pilot on track despite warning over legal barriers. By David Ball, political correspondent. Twitter handle at M-R-D-A-V-I-D-B-O-L. The new chair of the SNP's Drug Deaths Task Force is confident legal barriers to setting up drug consumption rooms can be overcome, as he insisted the facilities would not be a free-for-all or be a magnet for drug dealers after fears raised by a UK minister. David Strang was speaking in response to UK Government Home Office and Justice Minister Kit Malthouse, who told MSPs to stop focusing on drug consumption rooms being set up, appealing for a focus on better treatment options instead of wrestling with these legal and practical difficulties. The Scottish Government is determined to allow safe consumption facilities to operate, despite the UK Government holding the legal powers to allow the policy to be implemented. Evidence suggests that a safe place for those with drug addiction to consume drugs saves lives and can't help point those to other support services. Mr Malthouse appeared before a Holyrood committee set up to examine Scotland's record number of drug deaths after 1,339 fatalities were confirmed in the latest annual statistics, the highest in Europe. He claimed that evidence that drug consumption rooms can save lives is quite limited. Mr Malthouse posed hypothetical questions including whether people travelling to use any drug consumption rooms could face arrest for possession of drugs and liability for those working at the facilities if there is a death. He told MSPs that Police Scotland may be put in a tricky position in terms of who they prosecute if the policy is brought forward. He said, I think we have to be quite careful about the signal we send more widely on drugs and drugs consumption and whether it's acceptable and whether we want to drive that number down. I think there would be practical difficulties that might make it tricky to do so from a legal point of view. Even if we were to say yes today, all of that work would take time. The nature of the problem is so urgent and so much more of a difference can be made by building that treatment system fast, by rolling out these new interventions, that I think we can overcome and reverse the trend much more quickly that way. Mr Strang became chair of the Scottish Government's Drug Death Task Force last month when Professor Katrina Matheson quit the role after a row with SNP ministers over the need for their work being accelerated. He told MSPs that an urgent need to improve how we respond to this crisis is needed. Asked about specific details of any safer consumption rooms to be introduced, Mr Strang stressed the number required and where they could be would need to be a matter for local communities. He said it would be agreed in principle and clearly all the legalities and practicalities would need to be worked out at a national level, but I think it would be an issue that local authorities, local health boards, local police would have a view on and they would be the ones who decide. Asked about Mr Malthouse's concerns over the complex nature of setting up drunk drug consumption rooms, Mr Strang told MSPs that the Crown Office and Police Scotland will come up with a working solution. He added that if drug dealers attempted to take advantage of any drug consumption facilities or tolerance zones, the police would intervene. He said, it's not a free-for-all and encouragement for drug dealers. I think whatever practical objections or challenges there are, 
those are entirely able to be overcome. Doing so will save lives. Mr Strang was pressed over the UK government minister warning that drug consumption rooms could encourage people to take drugs. He said, It reveals our mindset that drug use is about criminality. He was talking about encouraging crime, and I think the argument for them is about tackling Scotland's public health crisis. The emphasis on policing as being a route to tackling our public health crisis isn't the right way forward. We've tried it for 50 years and this is where we are. SNP Drugs Policy Minister Angela Constance insisted that there is no disputing evidence that safer drug consumption facilities can save lives. Asked if she was confident that plans for a pilot facility to be trialled in Glasgow will go ahead, Ms Constance said, yes, I am. She added, work is going on with reference to a pilot for a safer drug consumption facility in Glasgow. A proposition has been brought forward by the Health and Social Care Partnership in Glasgow for that pilot. There is very extensive work going on between the Crown Office, police, ourselves and our local partners in Glasgow. Pressed over Mr Malthouse's opposition to the policy, Ms Constance said that he sees more problems than I see. She added, There are undoubtedly issues that need to be resolved and that's what we are actively engaged with. The ministers told MSPs that there were three avenues to pursue to introduce drug consumption facilities. Either the UK government could introduce legislation, the Tory government could devolve powers to Scotland, or the Scottish government could pursue what we can within our own powers to bring forward a proposition that is both clinically and legally safe. She added, It has its difficulties, but that work is progressing. We're absolutely committed to doing everything we can, where possible, within our powers to implement evidence-based interventions that save lives. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 2nd of February 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Late City by Robert Owen Butler. The Village by Caroline Mitchell. The End of Innocence by Simon Garfield. Paperback Reviews by Alistair Mabbott. Late City, Robert Owen Butler. No exit, £9.99. As the results of the 2016 US election trickle in, 115-year-old newspaper man Sam Cunningham lies in his deathbed where he is visited by God and the two go back together to review his life. The son of an abusive Louisiana banker, Sam fought underage in France in the First World War before entering the newspaper business in 1920s Chicago, a job which allows his story to intersect with major historical events. Outside of work, he knows he was emotionally distanced and neglected his wife and son. The influence that the toxic masculinity of his harsh father and the macho newsroom have had on Sam's personality is clear, but Butler has also subtly laced Sam's end-of-life retrospective with a critique of the American century and the small steps that eventually made Trump's election inevitable. Late City can be slow and uneven, but an opportunity for redemption towards the end makes up for the frustration. The Village, Caroline Mitchell, Thomas and Mercer, £8.99. Ten years ago, Martin and Susan Harper and their disabled daughter Grace vanished into thin air. London-based journalist Naomi Ward is so determined to find out what happened to them that, when their cottage comes on the market, she persuades her rich husband Ed to buy it without telling him why. Ed's daughter Morgan is to join them, which is awkward because her stepmother is not one of Morgan's favourite people. Naomi starts to make inquiries about the Harpers around the village of Nybrook, but the locals don't take kindly to her questions, and when Naomi pushes harder, the atmosphere turns menacing and danger starts to close in. A former police detective, Mitchell turns in a murky psychological thriller 
that seems to be moving along a predictable path before pulling the rug repeatedly from under its readers' feet. The village has its shaky aspects, but on the whole, she pulls it off. The End of Innocence, Simon Garfield, Faber, £10.99. The success of Russell T Davies's It's a Sin prompted the reissue of this 1994 book, journalist Garfield's account of the AIDS crisis in Britain, now featuring a foreword by Davies and an afterword bringing us up to date, is a classic of its kind. The recipient of the Somerset Mom Prize upon its original publication, Clean and accessible, The End of Innocence is partly a thoroughly researched overview of how the government, press and medical establishment responded to the arrival of the new virus, partly an oral history of a dark era which chronicles how activists, campaigners and personal testimonies helped change opinion and begin the long, slow process of destigmatizing people with HIV. Garfield has the facts and figures at his fingertips, but the book's great strength is its insistence on putting a human face in the crisis, counting the personal cost of the virus and the intolerance that accompanied it. By Alastair Mabbott. The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 3rd of February, 2022. Brexit has profoundly changed independence prospectus around the border. By Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor. Brexit has re-energised the campaign for independence, but also profoundly changed what it must explain in any future referendum, according to a leading think tank. A report published today by UK in a changing Europe says, a yes prospectus would need to confront challenges over the border with England, trade and the economy. The authors, Professors Nicola McEwen and Katie Hayward, said there could be benefits from the SNP's policy of an independent Scotland rejoining the EU, such as free movement for jobs. However, re-entry would also make Scotland's border with England an external EU border which would need to be carefully controlled and managed. Some cross-border arrangements envisaged at the time of the 2014 referendum would therefore no longer be possible as a result of the UK's departure from the EU. There would also be behind-the-border processes needed to regulate the flow of goods, services, people and money, requiring new technology, infrastructure and staff. Nicola Sturgeon has said she wants to hold Indiref 2 by the end of 2023, Covid permitting, but Boris Johnson has refused to grant Holyrood the power to hold it. The First Minister has said she will legislate for a referendum regardless, but such a law would be challenged at the UK Supreme Court and probably struck down. Miss Sturgeon has admitted there would be practical difficulties for trade over the border if an independent Scotland was in the EU, but insists talks with the UK could ensure businesses didn't suffer. She has suggested the protocol keeping Northern Ireland in the EU, single market for goods, could serve as a template for Scotland. But today's report makes clear the EU would be unlikely to allow such an arrangement, as the protocol was predicted on avoiding a return to violence in Northern Ireland. In the case of an independent Scotland, there should be no expectations of similar commitments to avoiding a hard Anglo-Scottish border, it said. There is no history of recent political conflicts centred upon the Anglo-Scottish border to focus minds on the desirability of avoiding a hard border. However, it added the EU might allow Scotland a lengthy transition to set up border infrastructure before strictly enforcing its rules. The report also said Scotland would have to apply to rejoin the EU and the negotiations may be long and they would be difficult. However, on balance, the EU was likely to grant membership. 
The authors said they had raised critical issues to ensure an informed debate on independence. It is vital that any detailed prospectus or white paper confronts the challenges that Brexit has presented, including the management of Scotland's future borders, they concluded. Professor McEwen of Edinburgh University said, Our purpose is to open up a conversation about the nature of borders, how and why they are managed, and the kinds of systems that we expect may be necessary under a scenario of independence in Europe. Rejoining the EU as an independent member state would open up Scotland's borders to Europe, reviving opportunities for the free movement of goods, services, people and finance. But at the same time, it would mean a new EU border between Scotland and the rest of the UK, requiring new processes, infrastructure and bureaucracy to oversee Scotland's trading relationship with the rest of the UK. Professor Hayward of Queen's University Belfast added, The realities and complexities of titanic projects that change relationships between neighbouring countries can often become most evident at the borders between them. Just as we have seen with post-Brexit Britain, an independent Scotland in the EU would change the what, how and where of movement across its borders. This would have ramifications for Scotland's neighbours as well as for itself. Such consequences are worth thinking through carefully, beginning with a purely academic exercise such as this, not least because the UK's evolving post-Brexit relationship with the EU could conceivably mould its relationship with Scotland across the land border post-independence. This article is written by Tom Gordon. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 3rd of February 2022 News. Scots were more likely to drink alone at home during lockdown than English, by Carolyn Wilson, senior reporter. More Scots drank alone at home during the first national lockdown than in England, according to new research. Scientists studied the habits of 41,507 adult drinkers in Scotland and 253,148 south of the border comparing the first lockdown in March 2020 to the easing of restrictions in July and the reintroduction of measures in October. It found that shop-bought alcohol consumption increased after the first lockdown and remained persistently higher than in previous years throughout the rest of 2020, even when lockdown restrictions were eased. While it's not surprising that more alcohol was purchased and consumed at home when pubs, clubs and restaurants were shut, Researchers say it could lead to concerning shifts in behaviour. Most studies so far have concentrated on the first few months of the pandemic, but this research, by the Universities of Glasgow and Sheffield, looked at data up until December 2020. It found that while people were broadly drinking the same amount when restrictions were in place and ended, there was an increase in drinking later in the evening. Lockdown measures were also associated with spikes in solo home drinking in Scotland, but this was not seen in England, although researchers say this may be due to a higher proportion of Scots living alone. The researchers noted that lockdown measures tended to be slightly stricter in Scotland than in England. The analysis also suggests that a statistically significant increase in binge drinking sessions per week and drinking days, and in England only, proportion of individuals drinking more than 14 units per week following the initial March 2020 lockdown. These changes persisted as restrictions were eased. The majority of studies so far have found that alcohol consumption increased among some groups, such as problem drinkers, but decreased in others.
Dr Ian Hardy, lead author of the study from the University of Glasgow, MRC, CSO, Social and Public Health Sciences Unit, said, Going forward, it remains unclear what the long-term consequences will be of the changes in alcohol consumption in 2020. With hospitality premises back operating at closer to full capacity, it's likely that alcohol consumption in these venues will move closer to pre-pandemic levels, although they could potentially decline again in response to new variants if restrictions are reintroduced or people are afraid of indoor spaces. However, the increase in home drinking in 2020 is a concern. We know from other studies that alcohol-related harm has risen during the pandemic. The increase in home drinking is likely to have contributed to this. In the past, home drinking has been a relatively under-researched topic and there is now a need to monitor it more going forward to find out whether these home drinking habits picked up by people in 2020 become a new norm within people's drinking behaviour. The rate of alcohol-related hospital stays in the first year of the COVID pandemic was down 10% on the previous 12 months, according to figures published on Tuesday. However, Public Health Scotland said the fall in numbers between April 2020 and the end of March 2021 could have been affected by COVID measures. Admission to hospital was tightly restricted during many months. This article was written by Caroline Wilson. Recorded from the Herald on the 3rd of February 2022, from the sports section, Philippe Hillander dropped from Rangers Europa League squad, by James Kearney. Rangers defender Philippe Hillander has been dropped from the Glasgow club's European squad ahead of the Premiership's Champions Europa League knockout clash with Borussia Dortmund later this month. Now that the January transfer window is closed, Clubs are required to submit a list of players eligible to play in continental competition for the rest of the season. Hellander hasn't featured for the Ibrox club since sustaining a knee injury back in September and the Swedish centre-half has now been dropped from the European squad altogether, despite returning to first-team training last month. Janis Hagi, who is expected to be out for the rest of the season after undergoing surgery, has also been removed, as is Nathan Patterson, who last month joined Everton in a £16 million move. Midfielder Yuno Bakuna has also been dropped, defender Jack Simpson has once again not been registered and Cedric Itten has also been left out. January arrivals James Sands, Ahmad Diallo and Aaron Ramsey, who were brought in on loan from New York City, Manchester United and Juventus respectively, have been named in the squad. That article was by James Kearney. Herald Scotland, Thursday the 3rd of February 2022 Air Cemetery Families fear loved ones are floating in water after burial chambers leak by Gemma Ryder, multimedia journalist Families in Air have been horrified by the discovery that their loved ones are floating in water after leaks into new burial chambers were confirmed at a local cemetery. Burial layers at the newest section of Air Cemetery and on its eastern edge have been discovered to have been letting in water despite assurances that they were watertight and airtight. Suzanne McKenzie told BBC Scotland she feared the remains of her son's dad were now floating in six feet of water. When 32-year-old James McGarry died nearly three years ago, he was buried with letters and drawings by his son. It comes after a section of the cemetery was sealed off earlier this month to allow the investigation to take place after relatives of the deceased raised concerns about flooding at the site last year. The water has now been extracted from the layers and any holes sealed up, South Ayrshire Council officials have said. 
Sarah Mackenzie told BBC Scotland, Families were asking if there was water in the graves. We were told that the chambers were airtight and watertight. And we were told that the chambers had a six to nine month trial period before being used. Council officials pinned the blame on external contractors who installed the layers in 2017. Families of those interred in the affected part of the cemetery have been informed. The problem is said to have affected 30 layers. Ms Mackenzie said the council sent out letters asking families for consent to have their loved ones' graves inspected. But although 30 families gave their permission, only 10 graves were checked and confirmed to have water ingress. She said, It's really distressing. I've got all sorts going through my head, thinking my son's dad is floating in six feet of water. No one has any trust in the council or trust the report will be the 100% truthful. The council don't care, it's just a job to them. If it was their families in there, they would understand. They're not caring or communicating with us or making people feel relaxed. One family member of a deceased relative interred at the cemetery, who wished to remain anonymous, received a letter from the council informing her that her mother's lair had been flooded. She told her sister paper, the air advertiser, It's just awful and I'm beyond angry. Mum was buried there three years ago. It's incredible to think they'd install a new system and not check it, especially something involving human remains. I've been dreading this result. A South Ayrshire Council spokesperson said, The investigation at Air Cemetery Extension has found water ingress in the inspected chambers. These chambers were installed by external contractors on the basis that they were watertight and airtight, and all appropriate permissions were obtained to satisfy statutory requirements. The water within inspected chambers has now been removed and all access holes have been sealed. Families who had a chamber inspected have been individually notified of the outcome. Investigations continue to determine the cause of the leaks, with the Council yet to decide what, if any, further action will need to be taken. The Council spokesperson added, The cause of the ingress is being investigated by both the specialist who undertook the inspections and a specialist civil engineering consultant. Once we have received the analysis and the reports from the consultants, we will know if further investigatory works are required, and we will liaise directly with families with regards to the proposed remedial action. Herald Scotland, Thursday the 3rd of February 2022 Mark Smith, We Need to Change Your Approach to the Holocaust by Mark Smith, feature writer Whoopi Goldberg has been expressing her views on the Holocaust. The Nazi genocide of Jews wasn't about race at all, she said, and had in fact involved two groups of white people. Members of a school board in Tennessee have also been expressing their views. Mouse, the celebrated graphic novel about the Holocaust, should be banned from their schools, they said, because they did not want to promote that kind of stuff. And then we have the authors of a new book which claims to have identified the person who betrayed Anne Frank to the Nazis, a Jewish man called Arnold Vandenberg. Their theory has since been heavily criticised by scholars, but it also demonstrates how hard it is, or should be, to talk about the Holocaust with any authority. Perhaps before they express their views, Whoopi and the Tennessee School Board and anyone else with opinions should read the testimony of people who were actually there and know what they're talking about. I mean people like Rosa Saccharin. I met the late Mrs Saccharin at her home in Glasgow when she was 83 years old and she told me about her childhood in Potsdam in the 30s. She remembered being at school in the day Hitler gained absolute power. The headmaster was removed because he was not a member of the Nazi party. The children were also taken to the playground and taught the Hitler salute. Mrs Saccharin then told me what happened next. 
We went into her classroom and the teacher said as long as she was at the school, no Jewish pupil would be hurt. But she became pregnant and left. The next teacher, a man, arrived in his SS uniform. He was a nasty piece of work. The philosophy was that the Jews were stupid, dirty and untrustworthy. Not long afterwards, Rosa's father was arrested and put on trial. Rosa never saw him again and believed he died in Treblinka. She also believed her brother Abraham died in Belzec, although she never did find out for sure. Her mother managed to hide in Berlin and they were eventually reunited, but Rosa was always upset and disturbed by not knowing for sure what happened to her father and brother. She called it unfinished business. Anyone who's read that kind of testimony, or more famous examples like Anne Frank's diary, will know how fatuous and shocking Whoopi Goldberg's comments are, but they may also be unsurprised that she was happy to express her views. Who doesn't have a fact-free view about the Holocaust or the Second World War? Who hasn't watched a Channel 5 documentary and proclaimed themselves an expert? Who hasn't been in an online argument in which someone has called someone else Hitler? The problem and I've talked to the Israeli writers and filmmakers Ari Folman and David Polonsky about this, is that there's a lot of stuff about the Holocaust out there, films, books, blogs, opinions, and not all of it is very good. Polonsky actually called it the Holocaust industry and said he was worried that it might look like he was joining it when he and Folman created a graphic novel of Frank's diary. They needn't have worried. The graphic novel is a triumph and that's partly because it comes from reality. The diary itself, of course, but Folman was is also the son of two Holocaust survivors who were taken to Auschwitz on the same day as Anne Frank. It doesn't mean Folman is overly reverent about the subject, far from it, he and his family have used jokes and humour to cope, but it does mean that he recognises how important it is to keep telling the story and to tell it with respect. This, I think, is the message that Whoopi Goldberg, the members of the Tennessee School Board, and anyone else who wades in should keep in mind whenever they talk about the Holocaust. Whatever a school board in the Deep South may say, we must continue to tell the story of the Holocaust, including and especially to children. But Ms Goldberg's intervention also demonstrates something else. We should approach the subject with an open mind and respect and free of our own agendas. We should cut back on the talking and do more of the listening. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 4th of February 2022, from the sports section, Claire Maxwell on new Mum Athlete Balancing Act, ahead of Strathclyde Sirens return, by Graeme McPherson. Being a new mum is hard enough work, but to juggle that commitment with returning to play elite sport takes that challenge to a whole other level. Claire Maxwell spent the first half of last season's Vitality Netball Super League campaign helping to coach the Strathclyde Sirens as she awaited the birth of her first child. Baby Lucy duly arrived in April and became Maxwell's primary commitment, but by the end of the year she had returned to Captain Scotland against Barbados. Now a new domestic season is upon us and the 33-year-old will be back in court in Sirens colours as the Glasgow-based team looked to surpass last year's stellar effort when they came close to reaching the playoffs. Everything in life becomes more complicated when a child arrives on the scene and Maxwell thinks the support network around her for making it possible to her to train, travel and play with the team again. Returning to her day job as a PE teacher after the Easter break will add another complication but for now she's content with just being a mum and an athlete. Lucy is nine months old now, she says. 
She's crawling and keeping us on our toes. Everyone says you'll never know what it's like having a baby until you experience it yourself, and that's definitely been the case. It's been a journey, but a good one. It was really exciting to hit the court again. My recovery hasn't been as smooth sailing as I had hoped, but I've had a lot of support around me to get back, get me back out there. It felt different coming back, both in terms of my body and mentally as well. Just getting used to the changes in your body and also mentally having the confidence that you can perform to the levels expected of you after a fairly long break. It also gave me a real positive energy boost being back out there, as you're not just doing it for yourself anymore, you're doing it for her too. It will be great in years to come if Lucy can look back and say, oh, my mum played for Scotland. Reaching the physical standard required to play international sport is very demanding and even tougher for someone who's carried a baby for nine months. Maxwell admits she was a bit in the dark beforehand about what to expect during her recovery and believes more research is required to help other female athletes in a similar position. I was fortunate that during my pregnancy I was able to be active so I kept my fitness up as much as I could, she adds. It was quite hard after Lucy arrived getting back into it but thanks to the support I had I was able to do it. I do enjoy training and it was good to get that mental release too to get the endorphins and enjoy some me time. But new mums in a similar position should definitely be given more guidance where possible. It's a subject that requires more research. I had to look to mums that I knew to hear their stories, but there's not a lot of information out there about how other elite athletes who return to their sport and how their journey was. Every birth is different and everyone recovers differently, so there's a long way to go so that new mums can make their return to sport in a way that is both effective and safe. Time management is a big part of it too, as babies are the boss. To be an elite level athlete takes a lot of hours. It's like a full time job in itself. So it's about how best to use that time. Sometimes it becomes more about quality of training rather than quantity. Maxwell enjoyed her coaching duties last year, especially with the team going on to surpass expectations with their performances. This time, though, she's happy to concentrate on playing. I really enjoyed being a coach getting on the bandwagon with the team having the best season yet, she added. It was an exciting chapter in the team's journey and one we want to build on. The squad faced challenges last year with different coaches taking charge of them at different times, but they'd really stepped up and showed what they're made of. I've stepped away from coaching this year and splitting my time now between mum and player, that's more than enough. It's a big year both for the Sirens and with the Commonwealth Games coming up with Scotland in the summer, so I'm just going to dedicate myself to being a player for the time being. And that article is by Graham McPherson. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 4th of February 2022, from the sports section. Rangers have no option to buy Aaron Ramsey from Juventus. By Ewan Payton. Rangers reportedly have no option to buy Aaron Ramsey from Juventus as part of their loan deal with the Italian Giants. That's according to worldwide-renowned journalist Fabrizio Romano, who broke the news about the 31-year-old switch to Ibrox on deadline day. The Welshman joined Giovanni Van Bruckhurst men on loan until the end of the season on Monday. The deal went right into the final hours of the January transfer window. Fans turned up in their numbers outside the Ibrox main entrance to welcome the ex-Arsenal man with open arms from the Serie A. It was originally believed that Rangers had obtained an option 
to buy the player come the expiry of his loan in the summer. But Romero reports that there is no such option included in the deal. However, he does say that the Scottish Championships will have the priority to negotiate a permanent transfer for Ramsey, should both parties wish to go through with that. He tweeted to his 6.6 million followers this morning, Aaron Ramsey deal, Rangers have officially no buy option clause included with Juventus, it's a straight loan until June, but the Scottish club will have priority to, re- to negotiate Ramsey's permanent signing if both sides wish. He was not involved in Wednesday night's old firm humbling at Celtic Park. The midfielder watched on from the stands as Rio Hitati and Leo Labada sealed the 3 0 win for Celtic. And that article was by Ewan Payton. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday, 4th of February 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Film. Long Promised Road explores fame, failure, and the Beach Boys' lasting legacy. By Herald Magazine. Brian Wilson, Long Promised Road, explores fame, failure and the Beach Boys' lasting legacy as Danielle DeWolf discovers from director Brent Wilson. As the age-old saying goes, you should never meet your heroes. In the case of director Brent Wilson, it's a warning he chose to disregard entirely, instead charging headfirst into the California sunshine and a world inhabited by one of surf rock's founding fathers. Sharing a surname but no relationship, The Bon Jovi Inside Out documentarian saw the spheres of work and play seamlessly converge when it came to Beach Boys founding member Brian Wilson. A life immortalised as part of the new feature-length documentary, Brian Wilson Long Promised Road, the project is, in the words of both Wilsons, quite literally a trip. Created with the help of Brian's long-term friend and former Rolling Stone editor Jason Fine, the project is one of enlightening extremes. Exploring the soaring heights of the band's chart-hopping success, alongside the altogether darker lows of the musicians' well-documented drug abuse and mental health struggles, the candid conversations that emerge as Fine and Wilson road trips through California offer a snapshot into a remarkable mind. Brian is incredibly intuitive. He really does pick up on people's vibrations, reflects Brent with a brief nod. When you speak with him, he'll just look a little above your head, and a lot of people told me, people that have known him for a long time, that he's literally probably looking at your aura. It was a concept born on a warm June evening from the fifth row of the Greek Theatre in Los Angeles, a show that marked the musician's 75th birthday. Brent recalls how the audience's adoration for the Beach Boys founding member, alongside the visible respect shown by his family and fellow musicians, left the director questioning how on earth did Brian Wilson get here? For me, it's just as much a film about friendship, I think, as it is about anything else, says Brent. Jason and I agreed on really early on. We kind of took a Hippocratic oath with this, which was do no harm. And if Jason asked Brian a question and he didn't want to talk about it, we just wouldn't go there. Standing as testament to Wilson and Fine's close-knit relationship, the documentary's emotional dashcam footage conveys a tender friendship forged over the course of several decades, Describing how Fine made the mistake of offering to do anything in order to assist with the project, the director admits that without the journalist's help, he would have been unable to capture the intimacy required for such a film, an insight Brian's fans deserve. Starring a host of world-renowned names, the film also features anecdotal tales and insights from a range of musical contemporaries, including Sir Elton John, Bruce Springsteen and Nick Jonas. I tried to interview Brian initially, As you'll see in the beginning of the film, and like every other interviewer of Brian Wilson, it doesn't end well. 
He doesn't like to be interviewed. I knew I was failing miserably, and my movie was probably going to fail miserably if I didn't try to do something. Renowned for being a man of few words, Brian's linguistic skills instead came into their own when paired with the syncopated rhythms of hits encoding Snurfing USA, I Get Around and Wouldn't It Be Nice. A nine-time Grammy Award nominee, two-time winner and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Brian's expansive list of musical accolades is downright enviable. It makes sense, then, that the biggest challenge posed by such a project centred around incentivising a 79-year-old who wants for very little. It's hard to speculate, but I think Brian maybe saw this film because he agreed to do the film really easily as an opportunity to say some things that he hasn't said, particularly with his brothers, says Brent pensively. That was something I was really surprised by and I didn't expect because I knew that was going to be painful for him. Comprised of the three Wilson brothers, Brian, Dennis and Carol, alongside cousin Mike Love and friend Al Jardin, the Beach Boys' original lineup was short-lived following the untimely death of Dennis, who drowned in 1983. Not long after, Brian found himself estranged from the group, with his youngest brother Carol dying from lung cancer in 1998. Brian is the last Wilson, reflects Brent, noting the inevitable pain that comes as a result of an eldest child losing all their younger siblings. I know how much he loved his brothers and how complicated their relationships were, so I didn't expect him to talk that much about them. When he started to discuss those, for me, that was a lovely surprise. It shaped the film, to be honest with you. For the musically inclined, this dark sense of melancholy can be heard drifting through even the most upbeat Brian Wilson pen tracks. It's a sound Brent describes as loneliness and a, almost a cry for help. A notion that becomes increasingly apparent when contextualised against a life shaped by abuse, loss and creative isolation. Wouldn't it be nice to me was a question mark, explains Brent, half lost in thought. There was always this kind of little undercurrent, if you're open to that, and I think, like so many serious Brian Wilson fans, it was that undercurrent that pulled me in. Describing the Beach Boys track In My Room as the gateway drug that led him to discover artists such as Bruce Springsteen and Jim James, Brent notes the way in which his own musical education was shaped by the band's groundbreaking harmonies and distinctive textures. As crazy as it may sound, and it sounds kind of silly just hearing in my head, but I literally thought to myself, what if there were 70 hours of interviews with Beethoven or Mozart or Hemingway? How valuable would that be intrinsically to the world 100 years from now? And that's the way I approached it, says Brent. I really truly want this to be a film that lasts the ages and gives an insight into Brian that people haven't seen before. Brian Wilson, Long Promised Road, is in cinemas now by Herald Magazine. The Herald, Monday the 7th of February 2022. News. Covid Scotland. Humza Yousaf warns of new variants amid fragile state. This article is by Jack Aitchison. Scotland remains in a fragile state over the coronavirus pandemic despite coming through the worst of Omicron, Humza Yousaf has said. The Health Secretary also raised the possibility of another variant of the virus as he spoke of the significant backlog still facing the NHS. On Sunday, 24 people were in intensive care with COVID-19, the lowest figure since July with 958 people in hospital, the fewest since early January. In recent weeks, measures put in place to stem the rise of the Omicron variant, which included the closing of nightclubs and reintroduction of social distancing between groups in leisure and hospitality premises, 
were eased after ministers judged a prediction of 50,000 daily infections would not come to pass. Speaking on BBC Radio Scotland's Good Morning Scotland programme on Monday, Mr Yousaf said, I think we're through the worst of it. He added, I definitely think the last few weeks of December and the first few weeks of January, that five to six week period was probably the worst and most intense period the health service has ever come under in its 73 year existence. That's not coming from me, that's coming from people who have been working there for decades and decades. Despite the downturn in cases of the new variant, the Health Secretary cautioned there was still substantial pressure being exerted on the health service. While we're through perhaps the worst of it, we should also say that there is still significant pressure on the health service, he said. That pressure comes from the continued number of COVID patients. They're just under 1,000, thankfully, who are in hospital with COVID. It also comes from the cumulative impact of two years of a pandemic and having to catch up with that significant backlog. Mr Yousaf also said extensive infection control measures placed on dentistry services would not be eased until the spread of COVID-19 reduced further while he raised the possibility of another variant of the virus. Until we are in a more endemic state in relation to COVID, until we are able to get back to even more normality than we have at the moment, then I'm afraid those infection prevention and control measures in some shape or form are going to have to remain. Our recovery is going to have to work around what is currently still a quite fragile state. Any clinician or public health expert that I've spoken to, nobody suggested that Omicron was the last variant that we'll see. This article is by Jack Aitchison. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 7th of February 2022, from the sports section, Scotland edge out England to retain Calcutta Cup with pulsating Murrayfield win. And this article was first published on the 5th of February by Stuart Bathgate. A mature performance built on solid defence was enough, just, for Scotland to kickstart their Six Nations campaign in spectacular fashion. It was a nerve-wracking match right to the end, where England had four scrums in an excellent attacking position and one slip-up would have handed them an easy penalty. But, as the visitors coach Eddie Jones accepted, Scotland deserved to win. They withstood a barrage of pressure in the first half to go in at the break 10-6 ahead, maintaining their composure as England went for the jugular, and they took their chances to hit back in the second after Marcus Smith had given his team the lead. And, it should be said, they had a little bit of help from Luke Cowan Dickey, who not only yellow carded, but conceded a penalty try by leaping up and slapping down a high ball destined to be caught by Darcy Graham. Scotland were seven points down just before the England hooker was sent to the bin, but soon after the referee's decision drew them level, Finn Russell scored what turned out to be the winning score with a penalty for a scrum offence. It was a triumphant conclusion to a game that began in disconcerting fashion for the home side, who were pinned back deep in their own half for much of the first quarter. England, although apparently intent on slowing every set piece down, were lively enough once they had secured the ball in open play. But, in drier than expected conditions, they adhered to a game plan that was better suited to the forecast downpour, kicking away possession several times when they had an overlap. 
Later in that first half, Stanton Smith did the right option with the boot, opting to seek out Henry Slade in the right corner, but his kick was marginally too high for the centre and the chance was gone. Scotland were 7-3 up by that point, having fought back after Smith gives England the lead with a penalty awarded against Johnny Gray. The score came shortly after Ali Price had gone off for a head injury assessment to be replaced by Ben White. Debuts are always memorable occasions, but perhaps none more so than this one, as the London Irish scrum half scored within minutes of coming on. Stuart Hogg started the move, Graham raced measly forward to go outside Joe Merchant, then passed inside to give White an easy run in. Russell converted, then took his team into double figures with a penalty in the last kick of the half. Scotland were on the back foot again for much of the time in between those two scores and came perilously close to conceding a try just after that half hour when a driving ball forced its way over the line. But four defenders managed to surround the ball and the referee ruled it had been held up. The second half began in similar fashion to the first and Smith threw England level with his second penalty. Momentum was firmly with the visiting side at this point and the standoff emphasised the point with a try after another mole had trundled forward deep into the Scotland 22. Smith's failure to convert was a mildly hopeful sign from a Scots point of view, but the fact England had gone firmly on top without using a single substitute was an ominous one. Then, just after another penalty had nudged England into a 10-17 lead, Jones put on four substitutes at once. But if the coach thought his newcomers would kill off the contest, he was soon confounded when Cowan Dickey batted away that high ball to Graham in the right corner. With the hooker still off the field, England offended again, engaging earlier in the scrum to give Russell a chance to put Scotland 2017 in front. That chance came after substitute Joe Marler had made a complete hash of a line-out throw, giving Scotland a free kick from which the scrum penalty arose. England were briefly penalised again in kickable range for Russell, only for the award to be reversed and Hamish Watson to be sanctioned for a neck roll. Cowan Dickey was back on by that time, and England were resurgent as the clock ticks on to the 80 minute mark. But one late chance went when they set a penalty to touch only for Scotland to win a line out, and another was foiled right on full time after that late scrum. Graham won a turnover on the deck. Hogg kicked dead, and the celebrations burst into life. It was the first time since 1984 that Scotland had won back-to-back games in the Calcutta Cup and their recent record against England is now three wins and a draw from the last five encounters. They will now travel to Wales for a confident frame of mind, albeit tempered by the remembrance of last year's championship when victory at Twickenham was followed six days later by a home defeat at the hands of the Welsh. Scorers, Scotland, tries, penalty try White, conversion Russell, Penalties, Russell 2. England, try, Smith. Penalties, Smith 4. And the attendance for that match was 67,144. And that article was by Stuart Bathgate. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 7th of February 2022, from the business section, Jeremy Peat, Bank of England shows worry over a surging inflation by Jeremy Peat. Increasing energy prices, rampant inflation, worries about a decelerating economy and debate about levelling up 
made a fascinating and complex backlog to the meeting of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee last Thursday. This all added to the importance of the committee's decision on interest rates and, equally, the messages set out in the minutes of the MPC meeting and statements from the bank governor and his colleagues. In brief, the bank appears very concerned about the need for higher interest rates to return inflation towards the 2% target, alongside the prospect of economic deceleration and an expected pick-up in unemployment. The previous day, Michael Gove had unveiled his long-awaited white paper on levelling up for England. There was no new money, surprise, surprise, but some indication as to where priority would, or perhaps should, be focused for the deployment of existing, limited funds. This white paper followed hard on the heels of confirmation by PM and Chancellor in tandem that the increase in national insurance payments will be implemented in April. The impact of this tax hike, justified by the need for more funds for the NHS and social care, will fall hardest on the lowest income groups, mainly in the areas prioritised for support by Mr Gove. The needs of the NHS and social care are apparent to all, but there are certainly less aggressive means of generating these funds. Taking the NI hike and the white paper together, the net contribution to levelling up seems likely to be minimal. First-time Tory voters in the Red Wall constituencies may be regretting their actions, and their MPs may even be even more concerned about both their party's policies and their own political futures. On the self-same morning as the MPC met came the announcement of a massive 54% increase in the gap in energy prices across the UK from this April. There were some relatively minor measures announced to partially defer the impact of higher prices. But these relief measures will be dwarfed by the combined impact of the NI hike and a huge increase linked in for gas and electricity prices. The NI hike in energy price rises will also significantly dampen consumption across the board, given the sharp reduction in disposable income that will ensue. That will in turn decelerate GDP growth. Also, higher energy prices will add to the cost of production across broad swathes of our economy, ratcheting up inflation once more. Of even greater concern to the MPC is the potential impact on wage inflation if those suffering from cuts in disposable income press for some compensation via higher increases in pay. This pay pressure will come at a time when vacancies are low and the leverage of employees consequently relatively high. In other words, as the MPC met, they will have seen the risk of events out there in the real economy tending to both slow growth and add further stimulus to inflation. Bad news all round, especially as the route to a deceleration in wage inflation would have been via increasing unemployment. The MPC has a primary focus on inflation data and expectations. The bad news is that the Consumer Price Index rose to 5.4% in the year ended last December, its highest level for 30 years. In 2021, higher prices were faced to a broadly similar extent by the highest income households, up 5.5%, and those on lowest incomes, up 5.3%. But the impact of the energy price increases will be felt disproportionately by the lower income groups, as energy costs constitute a far higher share of the expenditure than is the case for the more affluent. The majority of analysts predicted another small interest rise last week. It was therefore no surprise when, albeit by a majority of only 5 to 4, the MPC voted to raise 
rates from 0.25% to 0.5%. What was a touch surprising was that the four voters in the minority actually sought a full half percent increase in rates to 0.5%. The fact that the committee was in hawkish mood was confirmed by their decisions to tighten other elements of monetary policy, including reducing the purchasing of government bonds and their stock of investment-grade corporate bonds. They are really concerned about inflation. Together, these facts signal an end to the era of loose monetary policy and a confirmation of the move back towards normality. The MPC minutes reveal that inflation is expected to hit 6% over the coming two months, then peaking at over 7% in April. This is some two percentage points higher than the forecast in the committee's November report. While the CPI is forecast to decline to a little over 2% target in two years' time, there must be a significant uprise from the combined energy effect of energy prices and wage inflation. The committee minutes refer to an expectation of some modest further tightening in the coming months. This may prove to be a distinct underestimate of what is required to work towards that 2% target. So monetary policy is tightening. What of fiscal policy? The confirmation of the unpopular with voters and many Tory MPs, NI increase, shows that times are tough on that front as well. Latest data suggests that the deficit in the financial year was £322 billion, 15% of GDP and more than twice the previous all-time record. Public sector debt at the end of last year reached 96% of GDP, the highest since the dark days of the early 1960s. So, while government borrowing this year is somewhat below budget expectations, that will not be seen as that will not be seen as justification for significant additional spending. Already, the MPC is telling us that UK GDP growth is expected to slow to subdued rates in the near term. With monetary policy tightening, no scope for further fiscal, fiscal laxity, the global economy decelerating, and subdued growth expected in the UK. It sounds like time for a large dram. And that article was by Jeremy Pete. The Herald, Tuesday the 8th of February 2022. News. Covid Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon urged to axe increasingly redundant test and protect system. This article is by David Ball. SNP ministers have been urged to axe the increasingly redundant test and protect contact testing system and divert funding to help revive overstretched NHS services. The Scottish Conservatives will make the appeal in the party's Back to Normality blueprint published today, which will include a call for Nicola Sturgeon to wind up the Test and Protect programme. The First Minister will update MSPs this afternoon on the Scottish Government's response to the pandemic. The plea comes amid concerns over soaring waiting times and staff shortages in the NHS. SNP Health Secretary Humza Yousaf yesterday acknowledged that there is still significant pressure on the NHS, despite Scotland being over the peak of the Omicron spike, but warned it is possible another variant of concern could emerge. Test and Protect has struggled to keep up with a soaring number of positive cases, due to the more transmissible Omicron variant and wider use of lateral flow testing, but improvements have been seen as case numbers have fallen in recent weeks. In the 2020-2021 financial year, 
outside of UK government funding for national testing programmes. The Scottish Government spent £152 million on the Test and Protect project and £21 million for capital costs. Figures from Public Health Scotland show that in the week ending January the 23rd, out of almost 55,000 cases, more than 16,000 were classed as incomplete, with the vast majority due to people failing to respond to contact tracers. Conservatives have warned that only around 40% of cases were being reached during the peak of the Omicron surge, and many people are still only being contacted by text message. The Scottish Tories will today call for a move away from mass contact tracing towards representatives sampling at a much lower cost to public bodies. The party has claimed that the Test and Protect services has now become less useful in the pandemic response now that PCR tests are not necessary to confirm someone has COVID. Scottish Conservative Shadow Health Secretary Dr Sandesh Gulian said this policy paper is a blueprint for how we return to normality in the near future. We are urging the government to adopt a new, more targeted approach to COVID. We would place a higher emphasis on protecting vulnerable groups and trusting the public instead of blanket restrictions such as mandating face masks in classrooms. One of the key proposals is replacing Test and Protect. It was incredibly useful in earlier stages of the pandemic, but it has become increasingly redundant in recent months. He added, we are nearing the point where Test and Protect is no longer an effective use of scarce NHS resources. As we start to move beyond the pandemic, our approach must adapt to fit the new situation. Scottish Labour's health spokesperson Jackie Bailey has warned that NHS staffing shortages haven't been addressed for years. She added, what we have seen is waiting lists getting longer, cancelled operations up and real challenges for people. One in nine of the population of Scotland is stuck on a waiting list and there is no sign of catch-up or recovery. So whilst we would all want the NHS to keep people safe and the staff work incredibly hard, remobilising the NHS has to be a key priority. At the moment, that simply isn't happening. Health Secretary Hamza Yousaf yesterday acknowledged that Scotland is through perhaps the worst of the Omicron spike, but insisted there is still significant pressure facing the health service. He added that pressure comes from the continued number of COVID patients. They're just under 1,000, thankfully, who are in hospital with COVID. It also comes from the cumulative impact of two years of a pandemic and having to catch up with that significant backlog. Mr Yousaf said that our recovery is going to have to work around what is currently still a quite fragile state. He added, any clinician or public health expert that I've spoken to, of them nobody suggested that Omicron was the last variant that we'll see. Meanwhile, the Scottish Lib Dems have called for action after out of 100,000 Scots diagnosed with long COVID, only 1,157 have been referred to support services offered by Chest Heart and Stroke Scotland. Scottish Lib Dem leader Alex Cole Hamilton said fewer than 1% of sufferers have been referred to the Long Covid Support Service. 
offered by Chest, Heart and Stroke Scotland since it was announced by the First Minister a year ago. This is the principal government-funded service to help people with this debilitating condition. On Thursday, the FM told me there was no need for her to intervene, but Chest, Heart and Stroke Scotland are pleading for the government to do things differently. The charity want to see the First Minister ensure that automatic referrals are put in place across the country so that sufferers don't miss out. She should use her statement to announce those changes. This article is by David Ball. The Herald, Tuesday the 8th of February 2022. News. Scotland's future. What to expect from the Herald series on the national debate. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Herald tomorrow launches a far-reaching new series called Scotland's Future. Appearing monthly throughout the year, it will look at key issues of the constitutional debate, as well as the challenges and opportunities around devolved public services. The aim is not to push a political angle, but to stimulate debate about the country's options by providing a platform for expert knowledge and lively opinion. Nicola Sturgeon says she wants to hold a second independence referendum by the end of 2023, COVID permitting. If she has a vote on that timetable, it will be a decade after the Scottish Government first set out a prospectus for leaving the United Kingdom. The First Minister has promised an update of the 650-page white paper of 2013 in good time for Ref 2, but so far there has been little concrete detail. Last week's furor over which government would pay for state pensions after independence was an example of the way the debate still harks back to the first referendum in the absence of anything fresh. Scotland's future will help fill the vacuum with articles from academics and other authorities on issues and debates as they are today, not as they were. It starts with an examination of one of the greatest changes in the independence debate, Brexit, and its implications for borders and trade if Scotland were to rejoin the EU while the rest of the UK remained outside it. The UK's departure from the EU has both buoyed support for independence and complicated its execution, upending many of the expectations in the original white paper. Eight years ago, the Scottish Government tried to stress the continuity of arrangements before and after independence. That is no longer so simple, as Brexit has made independence a more disruptive event, given the different trade and customs regimes in prospect for Scotland and England. The First Minister has acknowledged there would be practical difficulties along the border to the south, but says they could be smoothed over through talks with London. The first instalment of Scotland's future will examine this and other aspects of Brexit, including the SNP policy on returning to Brussels without a second EU referendum. It will also look at what Brussels would expect of an independent Scotland as it applied to rejoin as a new accession state rather than as a continuing part of the EU. The prospects for exports, services, workers' rights, immigration, farming and fishing are also part of this week's package. 
Our contributors include Philip Rycroft, the former Permanent Secretary at the Department for Exiting the EU and the leading Cabinet expert on devolution, and Kirsty Hughes, the founder and former director of the Scottish Centre on European Relations, Dr Thomas Sampson of the LSE, and Fraser of Allander Institute Director Mary Spowage write about trade, Professor Nicola McEwen of the Centre of Constitutional Change looks at Scotland's potential relationship with the EU, and Professor David Bell of Stirling University looks at immigration. Meanwhile, former SNP Minister Alex Neil has his say on how to run in DREF2. The debate continues next week with a virtual roundtable discussion for subscribers hosted by former BBC Scotland political editor Brian Taylor. It will be your chance to put questions to the experts. As the COP26 summit showed last year, the debate over Scotland's oil and gas has also moved on enormously since 2014. Then, the Scottish Government's aim was to extract every last barrel to maximise profit from the North Sea, secure jobs, pay for better public services and invest the nation's wealth in an oil fund for future generations. Now the debate is over how much fossil fuel we should leave untouched in order to avoid worsening the climate crisis and whether green jobs replace those set to be lost. Runaway energy prices are also contributing to the biggest squeeze on living standards in decades. The second part of Scotland's future will therefore look at oil, gas and energy supply and how they intersect with the independence debate. As the row over pensions reminds us, the economy and public finances are central to that same debate and they too will be examined. Although it shares its name with the independence white paper given to voters before the 2014 referendum, Scotland's future is not solely about the Constitution. In future instalments, it will also look at a range of devolved issues such as transport, health, education and social care. Scotland's future is waiting for you. This article is by Tom Gordon. Recorded from the Herald on the 8th of February 2022 from the Sports section, Rangers ticket allocation for Borussia Dortmund Europa League clash revealed by Ewan Payton. Rangers have announced their away ticket allocation for their trip to Borussia Dortmund next week. Giovanni van Bronckhorst's men travelled to Germany on Thursday, February 17th in the first leg of their last 32 Europa League tie with Bundesliga giants. The game will take place at the Signal Iduna Park, with a capacity capped at just 10,000 supporters due to the coronavirus regulations in the country. And while disappointed this figure is not higher, the Ibrox side are pleased to have secured 500 tickets for their fans to attend the game. A club statement reads, Rangers have been allocated 500 tickets for next Thursday's UEFA Europa League tie at Borussia Dortmund. Capacity for the match has been set at 10,000. And while we share in our supporters' disappointment at not having a larger allocation, we are pleased we will have some travelling fans in the stadium. My Jurors members will be shortly be invited by email to register for the ballot, and we expect demand to far outweigh supply for this match. Our official supporter travel partner, CTM, will be running a day trip. Rangers would strongly encourage supporters without tickets not to travel for this fixture. Those who do travel should take careful note of the following information from the Foreign Office. 
Please note, unvaccinated persons will be unable to enter Germany. That article was by Ewan Payton. An article from the Glasgow Evening Times, Friday the 4th of February, from the Sports section. Ayrshire speed skater Catherine Thompson hopeful £22,000 gamble will pay off at Beijing Olympics. An exclusive by Susan Egglestaff, sports writer. In these modern days of lottery funding and sponsorship, athletes more often than not have the luxury of a significantly reduced financial burden upon their shoulders as they chase their dream of making it to the top of their sport. Not Catherine Thompson, however. The UK's top short track speed skater has had to commit everything financially in her push to make it to these Winter Olympics. I've been an unfunded athlete in this Olympic cycle, which is hard because this sport is so expensive. This season alone has cost me around £22,000, she says. It's a lot of money to put into trying to get to the Olympics. Thompson made her Olympic debut four years ago in Pyeongchang, but following those games lost her funding. She decided to continue pursuing her Olympic dream despite knowing that the financial commitment was going to be considerable. And so that decision, coupled with the fact this Olympic cycle has been turned upside down by the pandemic, has ensured the past four years have been something of a roller coaster for the 26-year-old from Irvine. Such was the pressure, Thompson decided to do something which is almost unheard of in elite sport. She took a year-long break from skating just two years out from these Winter Olympics. It was a bold move. She continued fitness training but spent her days working for a furniture company and saving up every penny she could in order to make one monumental push for a place in Team GB for these Beijing Games. On her return to competitive action last year, a disappointing performance did, admits Thompson, make her wonder if she'd made a monumental error. Not long after coming back, there were definitely a few moments when I thought I had made a big mistake in being out for a year, especially when my first race back was shaky, she says. Being aware of the huge financial commitment myself and my family had made to this, it felt like a huge pressure. After that first event not going well, it was a very emotional time going into the second event of the season. My coach really helped me regain a level of mindset because I was really thinking, oh my goodness, I've made a mistake here and potentially wasted tens of thousands of pounds. However, Thompson's class soon began to shine through. Impressive results in the remaining World Cups of the season ensured she did enough to gain selection for Team GB for the second time. And, she admits, the struggle to get to Beijing has made her second Olympic appearance all the more special. To have gone through everything I did and qualified for these games means the absolute world to me, she says. It was my dream come true to make the team for Pyeongchang in 2018, and I didn't think anything could feel more special than that. But it really does, because this time I've done it on my own with the support of my family. The year's break has, in fact, ultimately been a huge positive for Nottingham-based Thompson. She begins her Olympic campaign today in the 500 metres, with the 1,000 metres and the 1,500 metres to come later in the Games. And her time away from her sport has, she says, given her a fresh mindset and will be on the start line in the shape of her life, both physically and mentally. Short track speed skating has, over the past decade at least, become notorious for the spectacular crashes that make or break an athlete's Olympics. This reputation is, at least in part, due to the fate of Thompson's longtime teammate, Elise Christie, whose Olympic career was defined by collisions and disqualifications. However, despite the impression many outsiders have formed of the sport, Thompson insists this is somewhat inaccurate. 
If you watched speed skating all year round, you'd notice things were ever so slightly calmer out with the Olympics, she says. The Olympics is unlike anything else. Everyone has trained for four years for it, and people sometimes do take more risks because of what's at stake, and that's why things can seem so crazy at the Games. You need to be more ready at the Olympics to see people flying about the track than you have to be any other time. For me, I'm not someone who likes to be at the front of races. I like to be in the middle to the back of the pack and pick off people one by one. I don't go for one bold move so much. So I do have quite a different racing style to Elise, but the way she approached her races at the Games was so brave. I remind myself of everything that's familiar to me and I visualise some of the situations that might come up, just so I'm as ready as possible. Thompson has traditionally favoured the shorter distance, but this season it's in the 1500 metres in which her best results have come. She is reluctant to set any concrete goals for the next fortnight, but one thing she's adamant of, having overcome countless obstacles just to make it to the start line, is she's going to have fun. This cycle, as most people would say, hasn't gone how I expected, she says. Since coming back after my year out, I've enjoyed racing so much more, so my main goal at these games is just to enjoy it, to come off every race smiling, and if I do that, I'll skate well. And that was an article by Susan Egglestaff, sports writer. An article from the Glasgow Evening Times, Thursday the 3rd of February 2022, from the sports section. Callum McGregor says Celtic can't afford to get carried away despite humbling of Rangers by Graham McGarry. Callum McGregor has told his Celtic teammates that they haven't achieved anything yet despite their emphatic win over Rangers that propelled them to the top of the Scottish Premiership. The Celtic captain, who played in the 3-0 win with a mask to protect his fractured cheekbone, was seen urging calm from the rest of Ange Postecoglou's squad after the final whistle at Celtic Park on Wednesday night as they basked in the acclaim from the delirious home support. While enjoying the moment, McGregor says that Celtic cannot afford to become complacent or they will undo all of the hard work it took to get them to this point. You have to enjoy these nights, that's why we play football. That's why we play for this club, because there's a demand on us to win these games, McGregor said. When that happens, you have to enjoy it, of course, soak up the atmosphere and then bottle it and use it for later experiences. It's so important we don't get carried away. We've still got a long way to go in the league and even as a team, we're still growing. We're still getting better. There's a lot of development in this team, but we have to make sure we stay humble and keep working hard to achieve that. We're a good group. We're an honest group. We know where we are and we know how far we've come in a short space of time. As a group, we've probably felt it coming. We felt we were due it. But you still have to go and deliver, and that's what we did. We'll take the confidence from that, but we'll not have any arrogance. We don't think anything is done, because it's certainly not. We've been over the course before. There will be a lot more twists and turns in the title race between now and the end of the season, and all that does is give us a good platform. Every single game, we have to be at it. We've got to play like that every week, if we can. To be honest, the manager will demand that anyway. He's been absolutely first class since he came in. He's really challenged the group and the boys have responded really well thus far. It's another challenge for us now to stay humble, keep working and don't get above our station because we haven't achieved anything yet at all. That's the job of the senior players, to get around the younger lads and make sure they keep working keep performing and keep getting better, 
as a team. And that was an article by Graham McGarry. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.